Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 18. And we're continuing this morning in sort of a, a topical series of, of looking at four big picture truths that we as Christians and we as a church need, we must have, to drive the ministry of our church. And there are more uh, big picture truths among these four, but these four certainly set a trajectory, as it were, a path on which uh, uh, we are called to follow. In the last two weeks, we looked at Scripture, the big picture truth of Scripture. What do we believe about the Bible itself? And how can we know what's true? This morning, we move on to the second big picture truth, and and we're going to do that by means of a well-known parable here in Luke chapter 18. And following the parable, Luke continues in his narrative with some encounters that demonstrate the truth of the parable. So we'll read those as well. Young Christians, young disciples, as you listen to this reading of Scripture, notice that there are two men in this parable. How are they different from each other? Notice how they're different. Maybe write it down. Even draw a picture of how these men are different from each other. But then a second question for you is maybe even more difficult. How are they the same? How are they exactly the same, these two men in this parable? Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when he heard these things, the man became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God 
will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would grant that we would see your gospel, your good news for us in Jesus, in these his words. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Some years ago, I was at RUF staff training. That's Reformed University Fellowship, the campus ministry of our denomination. I was a campus minister with them for some years. And I was at a staff training meeting with other campus ministers and staff. And we would uh, frequently bring, well, twice a year, we would bring in uh, another person to come and and speak to us to teach on some particular uh, specialty of ministry or or whatever it might be. And, And this particular year, we had a Christian counselor with us, he was teaching us, and he was one that we all knew. Uh, he had a brother who was on the leadership staff of RUF, and this man had a, a PhD. He was a doctor. He was widely respected in the major city where he served as a Christian counselor, widely respected among all the churches there. He had decades of experience. He must have been 60 years old, 65 or so at the time. This was some years ago decades of experience. He had a heavy work ethic for six or seven people a day, maybe eight people a day he would see as a counselor, five, six days a week, a very heavy work ethic. And he said to us something very striking. He said, I go to work each day at 7 a.m. and I pack my schedule with appointments. I, I pack my schedule with counseling appointments every day. And I do these things in order to show my daddy that I'm working hard. Now, his dad had died over a decade before. Why would he do that? I mean, it it sounds absurd, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous. I, I do this, I work so hard in order to show my daddy that I'm working hard. I want him to know that I'm worthy. Whose approval are you seeking? Whether it's someone seen or unseen, we all operate this way. Some more subtly than others, but we all operate this way. It's a universal human trait. Why do we do this? Why do we seek the approval of someone else and of other people? Why do we do that? You know, when we think of the doctrine of justification, if we do, if that's kind of in your, your terminology, when you think of the doctrine of termination, of, of of justification, we think as Presbyterians of Martin Luther because we are, after all, what we call Reformed. That word Reformed is not just a Presbyterian thing. You have to know, you have to understand and realize it's not just a Presbyterian thing. What it means to be Reformed is is very simply to affiliate with and appreciate some of the primary concerns that were born out of the Protestant Reformation in history, some 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation, thus the word reformed. And one of those primary concerns 500 years ago was to answer the question, can I know that I am okay with God? And if I can know that, how? How am I to know that? That's the doctrine of justification. That question gets to the doctrine itself. And justification is older than Martin Luther, though, we have to realize. It's not just a Protestant Reformation truth. It's much older than that. Of course, we think back to the Apostle Paul writing the letter to the Romans. We have peace with God, having been justified by Christ. Paul writes of justification in his letters. 
But it's older than Paul, of course, too. It's not Paul's idea. We read it here by Jesus himself in this parable. He uses the word, which one went down justified to his house? But it's older than the parable itself. We, we heard about it moments ago in that reading from Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. Hundreds of years before Christ told this parable, Zechariah gave us this dramatic picture of the high priest Joshua and the court trial of him bearing the sins of God's people and the exchange of God's robe of righteousness for Zechariah's robe of filth. But it's older than Zechariah too. All the way back in Job, which many consider to be the oldest book in the Bible. Job, you know the story of Job. The, the, Satan asked to, to test Job and the Lord gave him permission and so he did. And Satan ruined so much of Job's life. And then over the course of the rest of the book, it's Job and his three counselor friends talking theology together and debating and discussing why is this happening to Job. And in Job 13, Job himself says something striking. He says, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. He says, I will surely defend my ways to his face. Wow. I mean, that's Job. Job said some good things. He said some things he probably shouldn't have said as well. And Job was seeking justification. But justification didn't even begin with Job. It's our ancient and abiding desire to be justified, to have approval, to have someone say that we are okay. We show it in our relationships with each other. We do it with each other all the time. We, we want for each other to approve of us in some form or fashion. Some of you think very much about what others think of you. Some of you don't think much at all about what others think of you, and yet you still want approval in some way. That's the nature of justification. Deep down, we must know, does God accept me? Our theological forefathers put it this way, justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to us and received by faith alone. That's what justification is. But why must we have it? Why must we have justification? The answer in the text here of this parable is really pretty simple, and it's it's implicit, though. Two men went up into the temple to pray. And there you have it. Why must we have justification? Two men went up into the temple to pray. Two men who are completely different from each other. You have to recognize in in a parable, Jesus often would use hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. and, And he does that here. And he paints a picture of two men here. One especially, this Pharisee, really is a character, a caricature of the worst of the worst of Pharisees. I mean, he's really kind of almost a laughable character, isn't he? I mean, what does he pray? I mean, who prays this way? Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. You know, murderers, adulterers, like this tax collector here. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those people. I mean, after all, I, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I get. Thank you, God, that I'm not like a... This is a caricature of the worst of the worst, right? Hyperbole. And then you have the tax collector. 
Of course, it has to be a tax collector. In first century uh, ancient world, the tax collector in Israel was the worst of known sinners. I mean, after all, this person was a traitor to Israel. He was one who had conspired with the Roman government who didn't belong there in Israel after all, in Jerusalem certainly, and they had invaded the, 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 the land and, and they were taxing the people and they recruited people like this man to, to be a tax collector, to collect taxes, and this man would get rich off of these things. He was the worst of known sinners. Now, a skeptical person, someone who's not so sure about Christianity, and maybe you, you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, might look at this parable and think, well, okay, but I don't really relate to either of these guys. I mean, one of them is ridiculously conceited. I mean, it's just it's laughable. I mean, who's, who says this stuff? And the other one is self-flagellating. He just kind of he's beating his own breast. And who does that? And Christians, we have to admit, can be conceited and can be judgmental. And Christians can be self-flagellating. And neither of those really seems right, does it? I mean, you'd be right if you felt a little bit uncomfortable with that. But you have to see something else here. Not only are these two men totally different from each other, they also are exactly the same. After all, two men went up to the temple to pray. Why? Why did they do this? Both of them were seeking validation from someone else. Both of them need to know that Daddy knows that they're worthy. They are exactly the same. We all want approval. We all want validation. We want for someone to say, you are okay. Despite their differences, these men are exactly the same. And if you are not a Christian, you've got to realize that that here is where Christianity differs from all other religions. And if you are a Christian, you have to realize that here is where Christianity differs from all other religions. What is it? There are really... If you think about it, two categories of religions. In, in all the world and all of history, there are really two categories, largely. All, I mean, there are hundreds, thousands of religions. They all, by and large, fit into these two categories one way or another. The first category is this. Religions that say, and there are tons of them, religions that say, you are not okay. There's something wrong with you. But the good news is, here's something you can do to fix it. Tons of religions say that in some form or fashion. For example, the Buddhist says that you need to gain liberation from suffering, from the, the continuing cycle of life and death and regeneration. You need to gain liberation from suffering by following the right path and improving your karma. Because after all, karma and what you do and don't do, that increases your karma and, and helps you to escape from suffering. That's what the Buddhist says. Or the Muslim says that you have to demonstrate loyalty to Allah by means of the, the obligatory five pillars of Islam, five things that, that a, a Muslim must be about doing in order to, to prove their loyalty to Allah. Or the Mormon who considers himself some version of a Christian, but he's not at all. The Mormon who considers that you seek freedom from sin by believing in Jesus, plus, and that's a big plus, participating in certain required religious rituals that you must do in order to gain salvation. And then there's, of course, moralistic Christianity, right? 
I mean, this is the one that we all tend to kind of fall into that says, uh, I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to pray more. I've got to serve people more. I've got to love people better. I've got to do more stuff. That's not really true Christianity, is it? None of those are Christianity. All of them say, you're not okay, but here's what you can do to fix it. The second category is this. Religions, which are very popular now in our country especially, that say, you are okay. You are, you're fine. You're okay. Just learn to accept it. You are fine. Now, one of those would be what is known as the power of positive thinking. You don't really hear that term so much anymore, but back in the 1950s, in the kind of mid-century, it became very popular. And I would say it's still very popular. The kind of the, the offshoots of it are Norman Vincent Peale was a Methodist minister who began to propose this sorts of stuff decades ago. And it was very simply, by the name, the power of positive thinking. It was a distinctly American optimism. If you just concentrate on the positive and think positively, I am a good person, I am this, I am that, then eventually things will get better. That's kind of the idea. It's it's really sort of a, a picture of the you know, the proverbial ostrich with his head stuck in the sand saying, the lion's not there, the lion's not there, the lion's not, thinking the lion will disappear if he just sticks his head in the sand. That's the power of positive thinking. Or secularism, which is kind of the, the form that the power of positive thinking maybe has begun to take in our world. Secular, secularism, which actually says that you must be about improving the world by material and scientific means. People actually have articulated these things. And a secularist declares that it's good to be good. It's good to be good. Secularists will actually say that. have said, declared, that's, that's kind of our motto. It's good to be good. Of course, that begs a question of what's good? What does it mean to be good? After all, according to whose definition is that so two categories of religions in the world you are not okay and here's what you can do to fix it or you are okay and just accept it christianity on the other hand says you're not okay and there is nothing you can do about it there is not a thing that you can do to fix it you are not you are more not okay than you can imagine and there is nothing you can do to fix it so, you know, maybe you're skeptical about that and you say, okay, that's fine, but I'm not religious. And if that's the case, then who's doing the validating now of your life? Well, you are. I mean, still there's some self-validation going on there. Job's counselor, one of them, said to him eventually this. He said to Job, do you think it's right, Job, for you to claim I'm righteous before God? Implication being, no, it's not right. He went on and said, Job, if you sin, what do you accomplish against God? I mean, what harm are you going to cause God by committing some sin? Why would you do that? And for that matter, if you're good, Job, is that some great gift to God? I mean, even if you do some good thing, what is that to God? What do you have to offer him? Nothing. Justification is non-negotiable. Therefore, the doctrine of justification, you can't be a Christian without this. You can't be. You know, the one time that Paul, the apostle, 
declared something to be anathema. That was his Greek word for eternally condemned. You know what letter that was in? He wrote the letter to the Galatians. And he said to them, If anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that you have heard from us, let him be eternally condemned. Do you know what gospel they were hearing from people that provoked Paul to say that? People had come to the Galatians and said, Jesus is wonderful. Believe in Jesus. Plus, you need to be circumcised. You need to cut off a piece of skin from your body. According to the law of the Old Testament, you've got to do that. Believe Jesus is wonderful. But you've got to do this too. I mean, it's not like they were denying Jesus outright. They were simply adding something to him. And Paul said, let them be eternally condemned if that's the gospel that they're preaching to you. And Paul went on to write, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We have all kinds of negotiable things among us. I mean, we've kind of learned some of this through the the congregational survey that we've done recently. It's been kind of fun to talk about it at the School of Life and Doctrine. We're going to do it again this evening. If you haven't come, then come and join us. It's kind of fun to talk together about some of these things. There are lots of negotiables among us. You know, the music by which we worship on Sunday morning. Some of us love the style of music, and every church has a a certain style, I guess, of music, perhaps. And some people like it, some people don't. Some people are fine with it. Some people prefer an organ or whatever have you. Those are all negotiable things. Those, Those things can vary from church to church. The clothing that you wear to church. You know, some of you dress... To the, to the Sunday hilt with, with coat and tie and so on. And, and others are, are much more casual. Those things are negotiable, aren't they? Even our communion habits, by the way, we come to the table. Or some churches don't come to a table. Or infant baptism, may I even say. I mean, as, as strongly as, as I feel and as our church leadership and our denomination feels about infant baptism, and we do believe and are convicted that Scripture calls us to baptize our children... Yet, you can be a Christian if you've not done that. I mean, that's somewhat negotiable in the gospel. But justification is not negotiable. You can't be a Christian without it. So if it's so crucial for us to have, then what keeps us from it? What keeps us from justification? Well, it's easy to assume for us in our kind of moralistic ways, and we all have them, that our so-called bad sins are the things that keep us from justification, from resting in our justification. You know, kind of our, our marquee sorts of sins, the things that you think about that show up in neon signs in your life, at least in your own conscience, and maybe as others see them as well. You know, the sorts of things that you choose to do with alcohol or maybe drugs or what you spend your time looking at on the computer or the way that you respond in anger to people in the privacy of your own home or maybe your anxiety you know that's actually a sin too you know maybe the anxiety in which you live your life and you recognize that you do those sorts of things or maybe even the subtle sorts of marquee sins like i don't read my bible enough which we mean i don't ever read my bible right that's what we mean when we say that And it makes us feel kind of guilty. And so those are the sorts of things that we sort of assume, maybe that's what keeps me from justification. But 
how does Luke qualify the audience that hears this parable? Did you hear it? It's pretty obvious. He says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Instead of the bad sins, could it be the things that we most admire about ourselves that are our biggest obstacle? Maybe it's those things that we most like about ourselves, that we most admire about ourselves. I saw a woman at the gym recently. I was there working out, exercising. I was on the elliptical machine, ellipsizing away and and, uh, listening to an iPod. And and a woman came up the stairs and and over to one of the stationary bikes that was up in front of me, facing away from me. And she was was fit, and, and she had you know, on her, her tights and her T-shirt, her workout T-shirt, and on the back of it, it said, training by run-on. I mean, she was like a serious athlete type, and she climbed onto the stationary bike and started pedaling away, and she set up her, her iPad on the, the thing in front of her so she could read it while she worked out, and I could see all this over her shoulder. And she started flipping through the, the news, and she settled on an article to read as she pedaled away at her stationary bike, and the article that had a a colorful picture, a big picture of a pile of greasy brown meat. And the title at the top was Pastrami, the new bacon. And I was looking over her shoulder. She had no idea that I was there or that I was thinking. And I thought, at least I'm not like that. I mean, I'm listening to a sermon on my iPod and She's reading about pastrami, the new bacon, as she sweats away on the stationary bike. At least I'm not like that. And why was it so natural for me to contrast myself with her? I don't even know who she was. You know, of course, I realized it. And I began to laugh at myself. This is ridiculous. Why are you comparing yourself to her? And, and I finished, and I went downstairs to do something else. And there in, in the next room... In front of the big mirror was another woman. And ladies, I don't mean to pick on you. It just kind of happened that way this morning. But there was another woman who was standing in front of the mirror dancing the hula. Like she was doing, there was no hula hoop, but she was hula hooping. And she was wearing a blue t-shirt with a big Superman on the front. And on the back it said, Savior of the world. You know, once again, at least I'm not like that. I mean, why do we do that? Why do, we, why do we so naturally want to contrast ourselves with the other people around us? It makes us feel better about ourselves. Luke shines some light on this parable by what he includes in the following encounters that Jesus has. A rich ruler comes to him and asks him a question. Good teacher, what must I do? You notice the important word there. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, of course, you don't do anything to inherit something. You inherit something based on what someone else has done for you. That should be a a clue for this rich man who comes to Jesus. And he goes through this conversation with Jesus. He doesn't do well in the examination, and he walks away sad. Why? What was it that kept him from justification? Because he obviously was kept from it by something. What was it? Was it just money? I mean, Jesus concludes it's very difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Was it just that he had a fat wallet that prevented the man? Was that his problem? No. I mean, you just have to turn one page in Luke's account to find 
the character Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, and he was rich. I mean, he had two big strikes against him, and Zacchaeus responds immediately in faith to Jesus, and Jesus comes to his house, and Zacchaeus is, is a believer. Clearly, it's not just because he had money in his wallet. I think the point of Luke including this account here with this parable is to show us that some who have no money are rich in their self-regard. I mean, this man was, wasn't he? He didn't just have a fat bank account. He had a fat heart. All these things I've done since I was a boy, he says, welling up with pride. Jesus gave him the list of things. There's something wrong with you, but here's what you can do. And the man said, I've done it. I've done all those things. And Jesus says, no, there's just one more thing. And, and he, he wouldn't do it. He went away sad. And the disciples are astonished and a little bit despairing, I think. You know, they, they see this happen and they say to Jesus, but if he isn't worthy, then who is? What about us? They're worried about it because they want to be told they're okay too. Luke puts the rich ruler here, I think, to illustrate the parable. Our pursuit of self-justification is like Job's. Remember his counselor's wisdom. Even if you're righteous, Job, what do you have to give to God? Even if you do good, is that some great gift to God? No, it's not. It's sort of like the dramatic opening of Al Capone's vault. Those of you who are old enough to remember this, almost 30 years ago, do you remember Geraldo Rivera? had what was, I guess, really probably one of the first reality TV shows. Uh, some some uh, uh, building contractors and renovators were going in in Chicago into the old Lexington Hotel in Chicago to renovate. And they discovered down underneath the building some secret tunnels and passageways and things. And, and decades and decades ago, the building had belonged to Al Capone when he had, had run his filthy businesses out of this this hotel building. It was widely known that he had done that, and it had been suggested that perhaps he had a secret vault underneath the building where he had stashed piles of his wealth and treasure and maybe some bodies of some of his adversaries, perhaps, that he had knocked off along the way. And people got all excited about it. They found these secret passageways, and maybe there's a vault. And so Geraldo Rivera comes in with the TV cameras and and, and along with even a medical examiner, in case there are bodies there, and IRS agents who didn't want to miss out on the possibility that there are piles of cash behind the secret wall. And it's all broadcast on live television with pomp and circumstance. And they get in there and they break through the wall. And what do they find? Nothing but dirt and a few old bottles. There's nothing there. And, and I can kind of remember Geraldo picking up a bottle and saying, maybe this was one of the moonshine bottles. And this is like, there's nothing there but dirt and bottles. This rich young ruler comes with pomp and circumstance. I've done all these things, he says. And Jesus finally exposes him for who he is. There's nothing there except for self-validation. What keeps us from it? the things that we most admire about ourselves. So then where can we get it? Where, where do we get justification? The disciples are dumbfounded and hopeless. If not him, then who? And Jesus answers the question, what's impossible with men is possible with God. 
Where can we get justification? Not by choosing sides. Not by choosing sides. You know, one of the the bad Bible interpretation and Bible study methods is to choose sides. You look at a parable like this and you think, well, I don't want to be like the Pharisee. I mean, obviously he's a bad guy here in the in the story and and there's the tax collector and I wouldn't choose to be like this tax collector maybe, but Jesus says he's the one who's justified in the end, so maybe I need to be like this tax collector. I need to choose sides. But you don't find justification in choosing sides. You know, at least I'm not like him. At least I'm not like the woman reading about pastrami. At least I'm not like the woman in the Superman shirt doing the hula. At least I'm not like that person because they drink wine, or that person smokes cigarettes, or that person collects tattoos. You know, kind of the marquee sins, maybe, that stand out to us. Sins, right? Or, at least I'm not like him. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't have tattoos. He's clean as a whistle, and he's full of himself. At least I'm not like that. Justification is not found in choosing sides, nor is it found by demonstrating competence. You know, that that woman on the bike actually was illustrative of something, whatever she might have been thinking. It was kind of a picture of us. Here she is spinning her petals and sweating her sweat in hopes of some future reward that she can enjoy that she knows is bad for her. If I just burn more calories, then I can eat whatever I want. The Christian version is, if I just try harder, if I just organize my time better, if I just read my Bible more, if I just do more good for more people, then fill in the blank. And we burn up the stationary bike on our way to some future reward. No, you don't find justification in that. Where can we get justification? One place. By grace through faith. After all, Jesus says, you must receive the kingdom of God like a little child. What were they bringing to him? On the heels of this parable, what were they bringing to him? Infants. They were bringing to him babies so that he could touch them and bless them. And Jesus had to rebuke his disciples who were rebuking the people bringing the babies. They didn't want him. Why would you bring these babies? They're they're. They're just babies. They've got nothing to offer him. He's a great teacher. Don't spend his time bringing him babies who just can't even cry good. And Jesus says, no. Bring them to me. Let these little, incapable, helpless ones with nothing to offer be brought to me because the kingdom of God belongs to such as them. It is completely un-American. One of the great Old Testament pictures of this is in uh, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. I won't turn there to read it for you. You can look at it yourself sometime. But there in 2 Kings 5, we read about a man named Naaman. He was a commander of the armies of Syria. And it was during the time of the divided kingdom in Israel. There was a, a kingdom in the north, a kingdom in the south. And... Naaman was not an Israelite. He was from Syria, but he had leprosy. And someone suggested to him that he ought to go see the prophet Elisha in Israel. And that prophet can heal you, Naaman, of your leprosy. So Naaman does what a Syrian would do. And he loaded up clothes, piles of clothes and silver onto his, his beasts of burden with his troops. And he carried it down to Israel to find the prophet Elisha. And he went to Elisha and he said... 
You know, if you'll just heal me of this leprosy, I will give you all this stuff, piles of clothing, silver. You name your price, I'll give it to you. And Elisha said to him, no, 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 no price for it. You see that river down there? Go down there and wash in that river. Dip dip yourself in that river a few times and you'll be clean. Naaman was furious. He was outraged. I'm not going down to that dirty river. We've got cleaner rivers than that back in Syria. Why am I going to go down there and get in that dirty river down there? You think, no, I'm not going to do that. And finally, Naaman's assistant said to him, Sir, if I may speak, if the prophet told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you do it? Yeah, I would. He just said, go get in the river. Naaman finally does. He gets in the river and he's washed clean of his leprosy comes back again and offers payment. Elisha refuses it. And the, the man takes a pile of dirt. And he says, I just want to, want to take this dirt because I believe God must be here. So I'm going to take this dirt home and, and worship God. And um, Elisha refuses payment. And the man leaves with his piles of clothes and silver. And Elisha's servant, Gehazi is his name, Elisha's servant, unbeknownst to Elisha, thinks, well, gosh, here's kind of an opportunity. The guy wanted to give us some stuff. And so I'm going to go get some stuff because we gave him healing and so Gehazi runs after the the troops and he catches up with Naaman and and he says you know on second thought we'll receive some stuff and the man says okay we'll take what you want he took some bags of silver and some clothes and and went back and Elisha knew it and he said Gehazi my spirit was with you I saw you claim payment for this you now will be struck with leprosy and he was God's grace will not be bought. He will not do with receiving payments of any kind for his validation. Yes, there's something terribly wrong with you. And there is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can offer. Nothing you can give to fix it. We must have justification. Only by grace through faith in Christ. It is lifeblood to us. What you love most about yourself may be the very thing that prevents it. It is not negotiable. It is indispensable and it is irreplaceable. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ himself imputed, credited to us, and received by faith alone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we pray that you would grant that we would believe, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to believe and trust and recognize that you have gained for us justification, that you alone, O Lord, have called us to yourself by your own life and death and resurrection, and that by faith in you we might have your righteousness in Christ alone. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.